you have to go through a certain kind of death to hopefully transform uh, yourself. And I feel like that's what happened to me. And I had to get my ass beat to really come to grips with, um, I think, a better method and to learn to be able to deal with loss and, and fear. That's Rich Newsom, seasoned trial attorney and senior partner at Newsom Melton. Initially, everything goes well and it's great, but invariably you're going to hit that dip. You know, I call it a crossroads, you know, uh, but where you will be tested. And that's the difference. That's to me when you are able to, you know, look it in the eye, look the monster in the eye and still move forward, scared to death, by the way. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Rich Newsom to discuss why there's more to learn from your losses than your wins, how networking and collaborating with other attorneys drives success, and what it means to face your fears and find the courage to take on the most difficult cases. It was a, a zero offer rolling in, and they had one, they had tried that case six other times with defense verdicts every time across the country. And if I had lost that case, uh, Michael, I was bankrupt. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Rich Newsom is a tremendous litigator whose numerous eight-figure verdicts speak for themselves. However, before we got into all that, I wanted to begin our conversation by getting a better sense of what drove him to enter the practice of law. It was funny, when I was in 10th grade, I was I had a pretty close family growing up and I was asking my dad in 10th grade, what do you think I should do? And uh, I used to read in church, you know, at the, at the podium on Sundays, and he said, I think you'd make a good lawyer. And to me, as like a middle-class kid, I didn't even know a lawyer. I mean, that sounded like just like incredibly romantic and wonderful. And it was like a light bulb went off. And so that was, that was the beginning, that little suggestion from my old man. And I know you've had an interesting career trajectory because you started as a prosecutor, then you moved into a a role on the product liability defense side, and then you switched to a plaintiff's attorney. How did that kind of progression evolve? Because I'm just curious, those being so very different, what was that evolution like? Yeah. So I used to want to go into politics. That was kind of my my thing. I was going to run for office. And so when I was in law school, I met with a great lawyer named Greg Barnhart. And uh, my my plan at the time was, okay, I'm going to be a trial lawyer and, you know, have a chance to become successful and represent people. And then I'd be able to run for office. And, and Barnhart, I went down and interviewed with him. He's a great lawyer with the Cersei Denny firm. And Greg's now become like a great friend. And you know, I'm, I'm very earnest. I'm in law school and I'm trying to get this job. And I said, you know, I'd love to work at a firm like this there in West Palm Beach. And he said, yeah, well, that's great, but we don't hire anyone out of law school. Until you've had 25 jury trials, he said, you're not competent to try a case. And I was like, oh, crap. So I went back to my law school. I was, a, I think, a second year at the time and started thinking about it. And a friend of mine had clerked at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And he said, this is like the greatest job in the world. 
you get to try cases in federal court, you get all this amazing trial experience and you get to argue appeals to the 11th circuit. And I thought, well, gosh, that would be amazing. And started looking into it and turns out they had a two year minimum experience requirement. So, you know, I took that as a challenge. I ended up, I was clerking for the legislature, working for the legislature during law school. And uh, I kind of, uh, I weaseled my way into a job with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District. The U.S. Attorney at the time uh, needed a favor. He needed some help getting appointed to a position in Washington. This is when the first George Bush had just gotten elected. And so he got the appointment and uh, through some friends of mine who were kind of, I guess, influential at the time, I got a job as a federal prosecutor right out of law school. And so that's, that's how it started. And then I guess talk to me about, you know, what drove you to the, let's say the product uh, liability defense side, even before you were a plaintiff's attorney. Yeah. So I still wanted to be a plaintiff lawyer, but I was with the office and it was, you know, I've been there four years and I'd had a lot of trials and it was an amazing experience, but I kind of felt it was time to go and had interviewed with a couple of other personal injury firms. I was in Orlando, Florida at the time, and none of the really good ones were hiring. It was kind of a tight market at the time. And a friend of mine said, Hey, who had been at the office with me at the U S attorney's office had joined a big boutique defense firm. And he said, Hey man, I just joined this firm. They're blowing up. They're representing DuPont and Ford motor company, and they're growing like crazy and they need trial lawyers. And most of the young associates had little to no trial experience. And so I interviewed with this really swashbuckling defense lawyer. who's a former Marine fighter pilot, just incredibly charismatic. And we kind of hit it off. And so he hired me. And it was never my intention to do defense work, really, or product liability, but I ended up sort of landing in this little boutique trial shop. And it was an amazing experience because they would parachute into what they called their blockbuster cases around the country. Manufacturers would hire them when there was you know, a catastrophic brain injury or a quadriplegic, and we would go in and, and try the case. And it was a, a really great um, opportunity to work with another great trialer and kind of learn the defense side. But I was a couple of years into that, and I was representing Ford Motor Company on a case where a two-year-old had died. And I'm in Ocala, Florida, and I'm, I'm taking the deposition of the grandparents, and they had lost their only like little boy grandchild, and they're crying, and I'm trying not to cry. And the defense attorney on the other side was a nice guy, but he wasn't a specialist, and so we were really kind of bullying him up. You know, we had all the resources of an international corporation, and after that deposition, I, I drove home and I called my wife. We we're pregnant with our first child, who's now ironically in law school, trying to build a house, still had student loans. And I called her and I said, hey, man, I can't do this anymore. And to her credit, she was still working for the radio station in sales at the time. She said, OK, I got your back. And uh, so took a huge cut in pay and joined a small little tiny firm in Orlando, Florida, that was a boutique firm that did some product liability. And that's, that's kind of how I made the switch and never looked back. And so for the last uh, 20 plus years, I've been doing primarily product liability, complex, single event litigation. And I'm curious because one could argue that, you know, especially in those early years, you very much paid your dues, but what was that leap like in terms of starting your own firm, in terms of branching out onto your own? It was a real crossroads. And I think that this to me was the watershed moment, right? Where you got to cross the Rubicon, so to speak, um, or whatever you want to call it. But I had been with this older lawyer for a while. We had parted ways. I really wanted to make the firm just about 
product liability or catastrophic cases. We're getting into some of the early mass torts back then. So now I'm on my own and he kind of left me in a lurch. I mean, it was understandable, but as all firm breakups go, it was a little bit unexpected. And so suddenly I was faced, we had distributed, our firm back then worked where you would we'd distribute the profits at the end of the year. And in January, he came in and announced he was leaving and he was a great guy. And so, you know, there's no bad blood, but all of a sudden now I was faced as a young lawyer. I had one associate who stayed with me. He took the rest of the firm. And I had a trial, two huge trials coming up, both of which had, and this is, shoot, maybe 20 years ago. And I had a couple hundred grand in one in costs. I had probably three or 400 grand in the other with zero offers. And, you know, there's no money coming in the door. I'm all of a sudden on my own. I had a small line of credit. The bank didn't even want to give me a line of credit because I was young and I had to go down to Fort Lauderdale and try a case against my old client, Ford Motor Company. It was an early airbag case. And Ford had tried this theory. It was a case involving a Ford Taurus where the airbag exploded with too much force and killed this lady. Super nice lady. And it was a, a zero offer rolling in. And they had one, they had tried that case six other times with defense verdicts every time across the country. And if I had lost that case, uh, Michael, I was bankrupt. I was done. And I remember calling my old man, right? You know, the guy that gave me advice told me to be a lawyer. And it was in the middle of the trial. And I actually came down with strep throat in trial. And I had a 102 degree fever in the middle of trial with every penny I had uh, on the line. And I was, I was toast. If I lost, I was toast. And I called my old man. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I and mean, I was on the, I remember it very clear. I was in my car in the middle of the trial calling him. He says, well, what do you mean? I said, I don't know what to do. You know, I've got this trial. He goes, just go on and try the case. <laughs> do, do your best. And, you know, that's all you could do. And you just buck up. And, and I went and tried it. And I got a multi-million dollar verdict uh, for that family. And then I went in. And there was a, literally about four weeks later, there was another trial up in Ocala, Florida, against a really accomplished defense attorney. And, uh, again, the zero offer and a multi-week trial. And I won that one. And it was another, you know, a couple million bucks or whatever. And today's standards, those are not huge verdicts. But for me, it was everything. And that was a watershed 20 years ago to get verdicts like that, basically as a solo. And, you know, I was able to take a deep breath and, you know, able to get more cases and never look back. But that was that was it, man. That was and I think that 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 happens to a lot of lawyers or business people that there is that moment. Seth Godin calls it the dip. Uh, there's a little great book, if you've read it, that, you know, when you start out as a new firm or, you know, now you've left your firm or even maybe you're you're with a, another firm, initially everything goes well and it's great, but invariably you're going to hit that dip. You know, I call it a crossroads, you know, uh, but where you will be tested. And that's the difference. That's to me when you are able to, you know, look it in the eye, look the monster in the eye and still move forward, scared to death, by the way but still take one step after another. And that was my moment. And so here I am. <laughs> Rich, I want to delve further into that. And, and interestingly enough, like Seth Godin has actually been on this on this podcast a few weeks back. But one of the things I wanted to delve further into, so it's easier, I think, sometimes when people hear, like they, they know the outcome of that trial, right? Like they know that you ultimately would go on to win that trial. It, you know, it was a huge verdict that would set you up. But I want to delve more into like leading up to that. What gave you the courage to proceed and move forward? Because you had a lot invested in it, right? There was obviously, I mean, I think people are really fearful in moments like that. What was the driving force that gave you the courage to still move forward with that in spite of everything that was going on at that time? 
a couple things. First of all, it was necessity. I was kind of put in that position by circumstance where I had another partner who just let, you know, announced he was leaving. At the time I was managing the firm at the time, most of the cases were cases that I had either brought in or through referral relationships brought to the firm and had postured as such. And for anyone listening to this who has a small firm, you know that you know, you really kind of look at your inventory. Okay, these cases are going to settle this quarter, next quarter. And you kind of plan out your year, hopefully, if you've got a large enough inventory. And, you know, you work on a few cases and, and with the expectation that there's a, sort of a rhythm and they're going to settle at some point in time. And we had these two monster cases that we knew with zero offers were going to be hugely expensive and time consuming for me and this young associate that I had. But I had these other cases that I knew were likely going to settle, or at least some of them were, that were going to bring in the revenue for that those first two quarters. And so when those cases walked out the door with my partner, there I was, I was holding us why, you know, it was so truly for me, just stressful. I, I was talking to my wife recently who has been with me every step of the way to her credit. And I'm like, why did you go along with that? I said, you know, when I announced I was going to make this huge, take this huge cut and pay, or even when this thing happened, when my partner left, she goes, cause I really didn't understand. <laughs> You know, but you know, you just do it. You have, you know, sometimes at least for me, I, I made the conscious decision to take a pay cut, but it was circumstance that put me in this incredibly difficult position where literally if I had lost, I would have lost everything. You know, in my plan, uh, one of my, sort of my big brother in my career has been John Morgan. John Morgan sent me literally all of their firm's product liability cases for probably 15 years. And he's been a great counselor to me and just, he's a genius when it comes to marketing and business of the law. And, you know, my plan was, all right, I told her, I said, you know, well, if we lose, declare bankruptcy and hopefully John will give me a job. <laughs> so that's a true story. It takes some level of awareness, self-reflection and humility to ask for help. In fact, this approach opened many doors for Rich, I asked him to elaborate on how developing a collaborative network of trial attorneys helped take him and his firm to new heights. Anyone who's listening to this that wants to do these cases, I want to say you can do them. You absolutely can do them. And the good news is that unlike on the defense side, the plaintiff's bar, we love each other. I mean, my best friends are plaintiff lawyers. It is a wonderful community of people. There's a group called the AIEG, the Attorneys Information Exchange Group. If you're a plaintiff lawyer and you're going to do product liability uh, cases, you really need to join. Uh, they help each other. They share information. They work together. I won that case uh, in that first big one, largely because of a guy named Todd Tracy, who shared some information for me that I followed up on and made the difference. So that's my first thing is that my first suggestion is that you can absolutely do it. Second, though, it is going to require an ass load of work. You've got to be willing to be in the office late at night, pouring through documents. It is not a form practice where you can just cut and paste demand letters and interrogatories. I mean, you really have to learn the science. You got to learn the technology because our experts are a extraordinarily expensive and be hard, few and far between because most, at least in, for example, the automotive space or the tire space, the engineers that are in the design work don't want to work for guys like us. It's a black mark. You're outside the club. And so you have to do a lot of the work yourself. You have to figure out the theories. You got to do the homework. But once you've done that, if you've plugged in and you're willing to put in the elbow grease, when I was with uh, the defense firm, we used to refer to some, some firms or what we called they were, and this is, gosh, you know, 20 years ago, but they were wired in, quote unquote. 
and certain other firms were not wired in. Wired in just means that they were they were networked. They were aware of the experts. They were aware, oh, expert, you know, Joe Smith got Dalberted up in Ohio six months ago. And oh, by the way, I've talked to the lawyer who, you know, defended it or whatever, or being aware of a treasure trove of documents that were produced in Arizona and being able to collaborate and work with the team of lawyers. And that's how we're able to prevail, whether it's in an automobile product liability case or a pharmaceutical litigation or a mass tort, whatever, it's the collaboration. We recently hired a new lawyer and she's an amazingly brilliant lawyer, but we had this conversation. I said, look, there's so much more to this practice. If you're just doing auto cases, fine. Or, you know, premises cases, that's fine. But to do these complex cases, the cases that can move the needle for public safety or, or for public policy even, it is a collaborative effort. And you've got to get on the phone. It's not enough just to read the documents and follow the pleadings and draft the memos. You've got to get on the phone and bring that collective intelligence to your case. You've also got to be creative. You know, one of the things we've done in our practice we that I think is imperative is bringing communities of lawyers together who are working across the country. And so for these national cases where it's gone, and this is this has happened in mass tort, or complex single event or consumer or securities. It is the, the notion of collaboration and this hive uh, ability. You know, one bumblebee by itself can't do a whole lot, but man, you put a hive together and all of a sudden they can take down an elephant because it's only through collaboration that we as small law firms are able to take down elephants, these bogeyman corporations that make conscious decisions that affect regular people. On the notion of collaboration, because I'm sure there's going to be people there listening. I, I agree wholeheartedly, but you know that trial lawyers as a whole are very competitive and are you know worried about what another firm is doing or not doing. And you sometimes see many that hoard cases that may not be either their area of expertise or that they just don't want to essentially collaborate with another firm. You know, what would you say to that? And then how did you, I mean, I don't know if you ever had to overcome this, but if you did, how, how did you overcome that? Yeah. So look, there's good and bad in our industry. You've got everything from guys that just want to, you know, what they call them case aggregators, right? Well, they'll just get a bunch of cases and sit on them and sell for pennies on the dollar. They refer to them as inventories, uh, not as clients. And that's kind of one extreme. Then you've got, you know, the other extreme, you know, guys like Mel Orchard, for example, who just care so passionately about their clients and, and the human story. And then you got everything in between. But I think by and large, our plaintiff's community tends to be extraordinarily competitive when it comes to business and getting cases and, you know, signing up clients. But then when it comes to once the cases are in the door, in my experience, and granted, there are some bad apples, but most of the time, as long as someone's not trying to dig into their pocket or it's some bullshit referral play, but if it's through a sincere sense of, hey, let's work together to help our clients because it it's not just lip service, it's logic. And if you can work together, th it is going to make a difference on whether you're going to be able to prosecute a particular uh, litigation or issue. And so I think that's why groups like the AIEG or you name it, you know, the Takata group we put together a couple of years ago when all the state court lawyers got together and we formed a coalition just ourselves uh, and we're able to, to stop motions from the defense that wanted to stay all litigation until there was this big bankruptcy that basically, you know, killed all for practical purposes, killed a lot of the individual state court cases in terms of ability to file. It all goes through a bankruptcy. But in any event, long story short, I, I do think that by and large, when it comes to working on complex cases, we do come together. 
And there is also the opportunity for, if you know, hopefully maybe there's some young lawyer in their car listening to this, know that you have a lot of friends out there. And by and large, our industry loves to help. We really do. And Rich, I know that over the years, you've had some tremendous wins. I mean, numerous eight-figure verdicts. And I know most trial attorneys never shy away from talking about the wins. But what, what about some of the losses? I know you've had some big losses, too. And, you know, and in those instances, what were some of the things that you learned? Oh, boy, hubris. Yeah, so I had been on this long streak. Actually, there was a case I tried probably seven years ago. I was up in North Florida, and I had never lost a case. Knock on wood, right? I thought I was invincible, man. I was like, you know, on a roll, neither as, a, as easy as a federal prosecutor, but then even as a plaintiff lawyer, you know, I just had, had a really good run. And so I went up and tried this case in a very conservative jurisdiction. And I had spared no, now this, at this point, my, my career is kind of, I've got a real firm now, I've got lawyers and it was a, it was a paraplegic and it was, a, it was a, a vehicle rollover case. And man, I had focus group that thing. I hired the great Jay Burke, who, by the way, is the father of the cause method of jury selection. Jay's no longer in business, but I can't say enough amazing things. He truly changed the way we look at jury selection. Certainly the East Coast method. He invented it. He was way before all the other people that have kind of taken claim to, to getting out the stinkers or whatever. But Jay was my consultant on that case. And we went up and we, it was a two-day voir dire in North Florida. It was incredibly conservative. And this is right in the middle of the, the tort reform days, right? When it was real, the U.S. Chamber was really sort of spewing a PR campaign to make juries hate what we do in our cases. But I picked this jury and Jay's like, oh, that's the best you've ever done. But I felt unsettled. He said, you did a great job. But man, I just didn't feel the connection. They were folding their arms and it was already a hostile jurisdiction. And I could have mistried the case because we ran out of jurors. There were so many that said, yeah, we hate your case. And instead, I took the panel. And I made some other mistakes. But after like a three-week trial, I lost. And it wasn't just the loss. You know, we lost like 300 grand, which, which really hurt. And it wasn't just the loss to my ego, which, which sucked. But then I had to go meet this 19-year-old kid in the parking lot afterwards. And he hugged me and told me it was okay. And I just... God damn. I mean, I, you know, I, I still get choked up thinking about that because I failed him. And so I lost my nerve for several years. I mean, I just really, cause it was a case I should have won. And we hear this all the time. Oh, if you're trying enough cases, you can't win them all. Or, you know, sometimes you're going to win ones that you shouldn't and lose ones that should. But I just, I thought I was immune to that bullshit. But that case in particular was, was my own hubris. And Look, I did the best I could under the, the time, but since then I eventually got my started trying cases again, and it was only until I went uh, my friend Mel Orchard's recommendation. He cajoled me and basically twisted my arm to go to the Spence College, the Trialers College out out west at Jerry's Ranch to to learn about the tribe building method. Because again, I was very Jay Burke centric. This method of of developing challenges for cause and kicking juror you know the bad ones off or the jurors that that are biased. They're not bad. They're just see things. They don't like certain types of cases. It was only when I went out of the Spence College to, and, that I was at A, confront my own fear, but also to learn how to be real and learn how to be human, which is something I had never, ever, ever been exposed to. And their method, Spence's method of picking juries is what he calls tribe building. Because again, he's in the middle of Wyoming. There are no blue votes out there. It is you know the most conservative place in the country and wins, wins cases. And it's through a fundamentally different approach. You know, here in Florida, we can, 
kick the jurors that don't like personal injury cases off and still have enough people that don't mind. But in, in Wyoming, that's not the case. And so the, he had developed this completely different approach. And so I learned that and it changed me. It, it, it made me comfortable with my fear, number one. It made me realize that, yes, I need to be in the courtroom. This is what I should be doing, at least for my life. But it also gave me the skills, a brand new skill set that I was able to bring home and share with some of my brothers like Mitnick, who I had lunch with, like when I got home and told me it was bullshit. <laughs> that was a loss that changed me and made me better. You know, it's the old, the hero's journey. I know Michael Leiserman wrote a great book about that. It's based around the notion of Joseph Campbell, right? The hero with a, a thousand faces, this notion that the monomyth speaks this human story of you have to go through a certain kind of death to hopefully transform uh, yourself. And I feel like that's what happened to me. And I had to get my ass beat to really come to grips with, um, I think, a better method and to learn to be able to deal with loss and, and fear. Because to me, that is the greatest gorilla, the elephant in the room that we never talk about in law school or CLEs. I, I mean, they talk about it at Spence College to some degree, but you know, we're supposed to be these, these warrior trial lawyers and we're not fearful. Well, I know I was, and I still get scared. And, and the good news is that's one of the things that, you know, we've learned, I think, collectively through collaboration, there's lots of great methods to deal with fear uh, beyond just going to the Spence College. I mean, and professional athletes, golfers, concert musicians, everyone deals with these great methods to not only say, yes, I have performance anxiety, but to, to deal with it. And there's great solutions. And so through my loss, I know it made, at least for me, it made me a better trial lawyer. While some of the attorneys we've spoken with on this podcast say they walk into the courtroom with clarity and confidence, Rich was transparent in stating that his experience is often just the opposite. I asked him to elaborate on how he's been able to overcome fear and anxiety when it comes to trying the most challenging cases. The rest of the world recognizes performance anxiety. It's kind of like I analogize it to like in the 1950s when we weren't allowed to talk about clinical depression because it was just not something proper people talked about, right? Well, today, of course, everyone recognizes that clinical depression is an illness. And we have everything from talk therapy to medications to a host of different approaches. But first and foremost, it's by just acknowledging it. So I think it starts there by saying, okay, yes, I have this problem too. The reason it's a cancer in our industry, I think, is because it results in a lot of lawyers settling cases too cheaply because they're scared and scared for good reasons too. I mean, let's acknowledge that. You lose as a trial lawyer, like that story I told with me, you're going to lose a lot of money. You may lose your firm, right? You're certainly going to lose your ego and your poor client's going to left, be left without the ability to pay medical bills or to take care of their children or whatever the, the scenario may be. So the stakes are real and the fear is natural. It's fight or flight. It's physiological. We had on our trial school program a couple months ago, we had Amy Cuddy, right? It's a very real thing, physiologically, fight or flight. You're scared, your arms sweat, you feel sick in your stomach, you freeze up, your voice constricts, you sweat, you get cotton mouth. That is it's just physiological, it's science. And to ignore that or just to pretend that you're not gonna be able to deal with it is just folly. And so there are things, there's breathing exercises, there's posture. The best of all, I think number one is practice with focus groups to get up and pick a jury, a mock jury, not just once or twice, but like to do it. You know, it's like, you know, if you're a baseball player, how are you going to learn how to hit a ball? You practice. And especially with 
talking in front of people, picking a jury, giving a closing. Practice makes not only makes you better, but it most importantly helps take your anxiety down. So that's number one, where you're not so much worried about, oh my God, am I going to forget what to say? Or a juror comes up, pops up in voir dire with some crazy ass thing. After you've done it enough, you start to expect it and start to understand, okay, here's how I deal with that. Here's how I deal with this one. These curveballs. here's how you swing. There's also, uh, we did a couple series recently. I actually went up to Canada and got, now here people are going to think I'm crazy, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I got certified as a trained hypnotist, right? Because I wanted to learn. I heard there was this guy, Milton Erickson, who one of his acolytes, Spence had, this may or may not be true, but I heard Spence like had used there's a this famous hypnotist named Milton Erickson who talked a lot about metaphor and language. And so I kind of went for that. But then I learned there's some other really great methods that these hypnotists, which are kind of a hodgepodge of, of you know, pseudoscience and con games and some legitimate language stuff, uh, but they cobble it together in a way that just freaking works. Not on everybody, not all the time, but the two things I think it works for is language, number one, but also is fear, dealing with fear some very practical approaches to trick yourself into feeling better. And then finally, I think the third one, we had Dr. Robert Goldstein recently on our uh, at a trial school webinar. Uh, he's a psychiatrist. He counsels professional athletes. And there's cognitive behavioral therapy where they, it's talk therapy to, to help you deal with fear. But also, last result, beta blockers. And that's something nobody talks about. But it's a drug. It's harmless. It's not addictive. And it takes away the physical symptoms of fight or flight. It takes away the cotton mouth, the dry, you know, the, the sweaty arm, the sick feeling. And so I think through a combination of things, it's easily remediable. There's even, we got a poker coach, a guy that coaches a lot of the hot shots, you know, the, the pro Vegas tour every year, because those guys get anxious and they're not even allowed to move because it's a tell, right? Guess what? There's ways to deal with that shit. So that's another thing I think that I would share with my younger friends or trial lawyers is acknowledge it, understand there are things that you can do to help yourself uh, with that. Lots of good solutions, because if not, bad things are going to happen. Fear is the little death, right, from the Frank Herbert Dune book. Uh, and I really believe that is that if you are afraid, if you allow fear to be unacknowledged even, it is going to affect your client, it's going to affect your performance, and it's going to result in you being a much, much less powerful advocate, number one, and you're probably going to end up selling out your client because you're trying to protect yourself. So, I'm glad you went there. I'm, I'm glad you went there just because I think more and more people need to hear that, that there is so much of this outside of just you know the practice of law, if you will. I mean, many of the most successful people we've had on this podcast, much of what they talk about are things that they're doing in terms of exercise and how they're eating in terms of like their daily habits. And, and I'm curious, what, what are some of the, the daily habits that you practice that help to keep you on track? So one of the things I'm trying to learn, and I'm just, I'm so shitty at it, is meditation. And I know that's kind of the trendy thing now. Um, my friend John Eustel, who's with Kelly and Eustel, is another phenomenal trial lawyer, maybe the, one of the smartest lawyers I've ever met. He's been meditating for 20 years. When he first told me about it years ago, it was, you know, I'm kind of rolling my eyes. But to me, I try to do that every day. Like I said, I'm terrible at it, but I think that helps. And then exercise, obviously, is really important. During trial, I try to, you know, at the end of the day, go for a run. And, you know, that just, that really kind of helps, I think. So that's another uh, 
I had neck surgery recently, so my my workouts have been kind of spotty at best lately. But yeah, uh, workout and meditation is all about balance. I really believe that. And it's all part of controlling your anxiety and stress because the other crazy, scary thing about our industry is if you look at the incidence of alcoholics and early deaths of trial lawyers, it is statistically significant. Uh, and I think it's all attributed to stress and fear. And the importance of, of just having a strong you know, community around you. I know you've, you've, you've briefly mentioned it a few times, but I, I want to be able to really touch on it. And, and that's that the organization you started, the nonprofit trial school. If you could speak to what that's all about, why you decided to start it, and uh, how, how can people get involved? Yeah, thank you for letting me talk. This has been my passion for the last, especially during COVID, last couple of years. But I came back from the Spence College, and I learned this incredibly transformative method of jury selection that was the exact opposite of everything we did in Florida. Uh, I called it East Coast versus West Coast. And like I said, I, I called Mitnick, who's been one of my greatest friends and, and counselors. I, you know, I love to call him during trial and, he'll, you know, give me his latest shit. He, he's a poet and he's crazy strong on language. And he said, ah, oh, that stuff's bullshit. And I, Joey Lowe, who was with Trawlers College, I'm telling him about the stuff we do in Florida, the Jay Burke stuff. And he's like, ah, oh, it's bullshit. I'm like, well, hold on, time out. It can't both be bullshit. So, and there was another guy, Alex Alvarez, that had been doing some amazingly groundbreaking work in voir dire. And, you know, Joshua Carton had shared with me about the Colorado method. And there's uh, Jim Purdue Jr. had shared with me this thing they do in Texas that Lisa Blue talks about too, where they score people and a way to do speed, voir, all these different methods. And so we initially had a couple of days of focus groups where we shared, we literally brought some of the West Coast guys came up, Mitnick was there, Alvarez. Mark Aver, we, we had a mashup of method just on voir dire, and it was enlightening. And everybody was like, oh, wow, okay. And it started a dialogue that ultimately resulting in more collaboration on method for things like opening statements, because there's so many ways to do opening statement too. There's not just, you know, the David Ball template in the book, which more lawyers have probably, kudos to David, have used than probably any other thing out there. But there's some insanely good stuff. Spence teaches some great stuff. Um, the great Rodney Jew. And so Gomez, kind of John Gomez, who you know, kind of took that piece on and was putting this stuff together. Then we held a retreat. We all got together again. This is before COVID. And we started collaborating on just voir dire and opening. And then it kind of blew up. And we started doing live streams and then COVID hit. But the idea behind trial school is, again, is this notion of collaboration. The other thing we're trying to do is to completely always keep it free. To my knowledge, I think we're the only program out there just for trial lawyers that is free and will always be free. And uh, even our library, and it's kind of like if you look at masterclass.com, masterclass.com has changed the, the paradigm for the way you learn to cook or the way you learn to tell story or whatever. You can go and watch Andy Leibovitz give a, a program on how to do photography because today with technology, we don't need to be there in person anymore. You don't need to go to your local community college to take a class on photography. You can watch Andy Leibovitz, right? And you just log on. And so we decided to do that. So we created trialschool.org and their library, uh, Andrew Finkelstein and Mike Erner built this thing. It's bulletproof. All we require is that you are a trial lawyer who only represents human beings or public interest groups. We're all like-minded. If we limit it just to us, we're not going to have the other side learning our secret sauce. And it gives a level of trust so that people like Mel Orchard or Joshua Carton or Alex Alvarez can come and share method with each other, knowing it's a safe place that's going to be used by the right people for the right causes, at least according to what we believe is our side. 
And so that's how it started. So we've got this amazing library and we're growing like crazy. We've got over 4,000 members and growing. Um, we got Julia Metz is actually starting a, a law student program, which is going to be super cool. We're hoping to start doing retreats again in the fall. Uh, we've got Andrew Finkelstein now teaching business. He's got a small business class he's going to teach. But I really think that if you just look at our trajectory of this idea that through collaboration, if we all just give without expecting to get paid or to, you know, collect a fee, then good things can happen. Uh, you know, you got guys like Carl Douglas, who's like, man, I'm always kind of circumspect of these CLE programs and join in trial school because it's no longer, you know, the traditional model is either, you know, a pay deal where you got to pay a lot of money or pay to have access, or you go to the trial lawyer association, uh, you know, be there a national or a local group. And whoever's the CLE chairman either picks their law partners, their buddies, or whoever wrote a fat check. And sometimes you get amazingly good presenters, but sometimes you get shitty people who really shouldn't even be up there. And so I really think we're changing the paradigm. And it, and it ain't me, obviously. It's guys like you who've recognized the validity of this model, first of all. And then second of all, the faculty, you know, we're you know, guys like Mike Kelly and Orchard and Alvarez and Mitnick and, you know, this amazing faculty that are going to continue, I think, to improve our program, improve our content and ultimately house it on this website that is going to be there for free, you know, for the next 10 or 20 years, hopefully. So that's trial school. And if anybody listening to this or only represents people, join, man. All you got to do is submit an affidavit. You got to put your bar number because we do take the confidentiality very, very seriously so that our faculty can feel good about sharing uh, but join because, man, the way this is designed is to be effective for you to, first of all, have best method so that you know when you're going in there, like me up in Tallahassee, Florida, I've got kind of the state of the art thinking that's born through collaboration, not of just one guy and his method, but by several, number one. And number two is accessible in what I call the fog of war. Look, there are some great lawyers like Spence who write their closing argument. Jerry says he does it three months before, right? I'm not that. I'm a mere mortal, man. I suck. I'm always, you know, like <laughs> scraping shit together and, and finishing my PowerPoint the night before. I wish I wouldn't, but that's. So the idea then is that if we make this not only available for free, but easy. So Erner built, Mike Erner built this platform that you can literally get on your phone so that if you are, you know, on an airplane driving to have to pick a jury, then or flying to pick a jury or, or you're in your hotel room whatever, you can watch a, a to the point, you can do a search by lawyer, by topic, and get the best method in a really easy to access formula. And I think it's been transformative for a lot of people, selfishly, most importantly for me, because it's uh, I've, I've learned so much from these guys. And I really do think we have improved the state of the art by discovering these little secret pockets of method. You know, like the Joe, Joe Freed speed trial thing, we discovered that, but I had heard about it and called Freed. He's on our faculty. Went out and recorded it. We just named it Speed Trial. Transformative. Transformative. Uh, you know, the Troy Rafferty, Mike Papantonio thing they shared. Uh, the theme grid for depositions. Holy shit. So good. So good. You know, the uh, Zoe Littlepage and B.B. Fell did this sick presentation on using Zoom for depot and trial. Just like, so that's trial school, and uh, I'm really excited by it. But it's been a collaboration. It's been just through the the generosity of, of a lot of great lawyers and, and guys like you, Michael. So thanks for helping us build this thing very, very sincerely. It's been a gift to a lot of people. Well, 
Agreed, and, and look, knowledge is power. And Rich, so as, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think the game changer for me is to be willing to, at some point, face your fears. And I think everyone comes to a point in their career when they got to just, it is so incredibly difficult to take the next step, but it's overcoming that fear and being brave and taking the next step and just putting one foot in front of the other. And to me, especially if you're doing it for the right reasons, for people or causes that you believe in, to me, that's what it's all about. I wanna give a huge thank you to Rich Newsom for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Rich mentioned that you can shift from a mindset of competition by focusing on collaboration. And it is collaboration that leads to abundance. And that oftentimes it requires working with other attorneys to get the best outcomes for your clients. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Rich Newsom, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with the CEO to the CEO and seasoned business leader, Jessica Mogul, who also happens to be my wife. That alignment from the very beginning could not be more important. We've never questioned late nights. We've never questioned how long, you know, someone's going to be there. And, and it doesn't just work one way. There are nights where you've gone home and I'm still at the office. We've never like challenged that or been like, where are you? We're in it together and we know where we're going. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 o